the apostolic constitutions, which are constantly pointed at by members that hold this far, far out strict view, are right. really not talking about what they're claiming they're talking about. No, Father Peter here is he's on the far, far end of that spectrum. Hello and welcome to the Theoria Podcast. Today I speak with Zach, who, along with his fiance in the early 2000s, converted to Eastern Orthodoxy. But shortly after he converted, he got swept up in many old calendarist ideas and was a self-proclaimed rigorous for about a decade. How did he get out of that movement and what did it mean for him personally and spiritually? Well, we talk about that, but we also talk about a topic that is very much in vogue today, and that is rebaptism or corrective baptism. We cover a lot of material today, so buckle up and let's get to it. Zach, could you tell me a little bit about how you came into the church? Sure. Um, let's see, I was, uh, I was a young college student. I believe I was about 20 years old, and um, my uh, then fiance and I were attending um, school at, uh, at Marshall University in Huntington, West Virginia. And uh, we were both at that time, you know, deeply committed evangelical, broadly speaking, evangelical Christians, although we sort of had sympathies with uh, the Messianic movement. And, um, you know, uh, little pieces of church history would come into our, on, onto our radar, um, by, you know, various writers being mentioned in classes and, uh, you know, various societies. I remember uh, taking an Islamic world, you know, uh, history class and, you know, talking about this sizable contingent of, of Arab Christians and who they were and what they believed. And it, you know, just really intrigued me. Um, and, you know, it became lonely to be a Protestant, actually, when you're deep in church history. I think there's a famous Newman quote or something like that, like, to be deep in church history is to cease to be a Protestant. But, you know, it was lonely. Mm. I didn't find the, the commitment to the 16th century, you know, debating points in deep in church history. I became really fascinated with a character um, by the name of uh, St. Athanasius the Great. And I really loved that he, you know, one of his letters is the one of the first outlines, at least in the East, of the full New Testament canon. And, you know, he, of course, was this stalwart confessor of the divinity of, of Jesus Christ. And I just became fascinated with his character. Um, so, so along the way, we met some people. Uh, one of those... One of those people was a priest. I believe his name was uh, Father Frank Milanese. He taught uh, uh, several classes at Marshall University. One of those was a church history class. Uh, his texts were uh, things like the Art of Byzantium and um, Metropolitan Callisto Swears, the Orthodox Church. I'd actually uh, discovered it mid-semester, so I didn't actually take the class. I asked for his permission to audit the class, and he, he let me. And uh, he mentioned later, you know, he always has every semester there's uh, classroom casualties that he, as he calls it, where uh, people, you know, find orthodoxy, they fall in love with it and, and, and become, become orthodox. So we uh, began to study along those lines, you know, quickly sort of read my way into the church, but um, 
you know, I still, I had misgivings about it. I think one of the big things psychologically for, uh, m you know, mainline Protestants and evangelicals is, you know, we gave up on ecclesiology very, very shortly into the whole thing mm -hmm. because we realized the Protestant movement as a whole was not going to stay together. And, uh, yeah. The exclusivist claims of orthodoxy were, uh, in a lot of ways, really, um, you know, not troubling, but just difficult to swallow. And um, I uh, remember we we decided we were going to go visit the local Greek festival, and um, which is a big deal in Huntington, as it is in you know most places where where it's held. And we met we met a monk there, an iconographer monk. Um, we were commenting on the beauty of the church itself. He was just sort of sitting there, like taking notes. We, I know he he must have been overhearing us, like in awe, especially of the beautiful Pantocrator icon up in the church's dome. Um, but he didn't say anything. And later we found out he had actually been the one to have painted it. Wow. Um, so he was, you know, he, one of those people, just actually very deeply humble. And uh, but I struck up a conversation with him. You know, we were sort of going back and forth. I asked him at one, you know, I sort of realized, like the turning point where I realized, like, I don't actually have any good arguments against orthodoxy um, was I just sort of like rapid fired at one point to him. And I said, yeah, but show me deification in scripture. <laughs> and without hesitation, he said, uh, therefore, you shall be perfect, even as your father in heaven is perfect. And I like all of my all of my other objections sort of just melted away, and I uh, began an email correspondence with this monk. He had he had converted. He's actually since reposed uh, many years ago, and uh, but he was he was instrumental in being one of those you know personal contacts that orthodoxy is this real thing. It's not just a set of ideas or propositions to refute. It's a living community. Um, you know, this, this very Greek community embraced my wife and I, and, um, we loved it. So we, uh, began our courses of, uh, catechism with, with Father Frank and were received into the church, um, incidentally on the feast of the translation of the relics of St. Athanasius the Great, May oh, 15th wow. on, on the new calendar and May, yeah, May 2nd on the old calendar. So, uh. We didn't. We we didn't actually choose that. Uh, Father Frank, you know, just that worked for his schedule, and we were married. We were, uh, you know, it was like a series of of sacraments, right in a row. So we did. Uh, we had our um, lifetime confession, our chrismation, our uh, our marriage, you know, our first communion, and everything else, you know, all in sort of a whirlwind of about eight days, in May. Oh wow! Yeah. Wow. Wait. So were you? When you joined the church, were you already married legally, or did you get married yeah. when That's right. when you joined? You got married. Yes. Wow, That's right. <laughs> that yeah. is amazing. Yeah, no, it was a, such a gift to sort of have been on the cusp of marriage anyway, and to have found orthodoxy at that point. Beautiful. Yeah. So walk me through the next next couple of years, if you don't mind. You join, you have this whirlwind of joining the church, getting married. Uh, you're you're basically taking all of like four out of out of formally the seven. Um, of course, we don't. Anyway, walk walk me through the next couple of years. What's what happens? What's going on? Well, you know, very early on after chrismation. Um, 
Father Frank is, is actually, at that point, transferred. The Diocese of Pittsburgh needs him elsewhere. Another wonderful priest comes. He's a very good man. And um, we're still in college. You know, we're now just poor married college students. And uh, which I actually heartily recommend. You know, I, you know there's, there's <laughs> nothing like a wife to help you hit the books and basically keep you on task, at least for me. That's been the case. And um, so uh, let's see. That summer, you know, our honeymoon summer, I found the biography of Father Seraphim Rose. And I read it to my wife that summer, the entire biography. And um, it was the new one, not the contentious Father Gleb Podmashensky one, the, uh, you know, the Father Damascene Serbian, you know, yes. approved one. But, you know, it really sort of gave me a taste for you know, a sort of a rigorism. Although at that time, I, I ignored the very common sense, very spiritually mature advice of Father Seraphim himself, mm. you know, who often mm. spoke against super correctness as, as much as he did against, you know, uh, you know, spiritual relativism. But I, yeah, uh, and that's I, something that I think is important to draw out just to, for the listener here, that if you read mm, his life and all of his works, um, I believe I've read all of his works. In any event, if you read it with a certain lens on, you can see one thing. And if you read it with another, or maybe with an open mind, you can see another thing. So it's not as cut and dry as people think. I happen to really have a great love for Father Seraphim Rose. Um, I don't, just as I have a great love for St. Paisius, I just don't particularly care for how he's been... Uh, utilized in certain contexts, but please go ahead. No, no, that's, that's a very good, and I don't mean to also follow down a rabbit trail here, but I will say, you know, I think we often treat writers as though, uh, you know, and, and Orthodox saints and, and is in particular righteous, even, you know, as not yet glorified, but we sort of treat them in a static way when their own spiritual lives, their own understanding of things can be developing over time and often is, Yeah. Uh, you yeah. know, with Father Seraphim Rose, the more, the late, you know, when I began to study it sort of later uh, in another context, I realized that, um, you know, for instance, in his letters, which are actually published by a completely different um, source to his uh, spiritual son, um, Father Alexei Young, I believe tonsured with the name of Ambrose. Father Ambrose, um, it reveals a growing disillusionment with the extremist mm. Greek old calendarists and a, an implicit trust of the, you know, tried and true, you know, Russian church methods of everything. But um, mm -hmm. yeah, we, uh, so I read the second book of, by Father Seraphim Rose that I read that summer was Orthodoxy and the Religion of the Future. Yeah. It was sort of that combination that I got bit by the old calendarist bug. I really oh, wow. went down that trail and I uh, uh, read, you know, everything that I could online or old calendarism is extremely online. Uh, yeah. Probably maybe three websites per actual member, you know, something like that. Um, they're <laughs> highly overrepresented on the internet. And, um, you know, uh, the ecumenist excesses I just I began to be really paranoid about 
you know, um, the Greek metropolitan at that time of Pittsburgh, his name was uh, Maximus, uh, he had said, you know, things that, you know, as a, because I'd only sort of imbibed this very rigorous, exclusivist, late Greek opinion about the complete emptiness of heterodox sacraments that he was making claims like, well, you know, the only thing really separating us from the Roman Catholics is, you know, papal supremacy and the filioque. And, you know, it just, it's deeply scandalized me. I began to doubt my own reception into orthodoxy. And mm. um, so when you were received, were you chrismated or were you baptized? We were chrismated. We, um, okay. I had been, I had received baptism in the Episcopal church as an infant. And okay. um, my wife had been uh, baptized by her Methodist church as a seven or eight year old. Sure. And um, so, yeah, we, you know, we asked about that, you know, all of that was in the sort of the, the catechism and everything. And they, they told us, you know, Father Frank gave us the, the level of understanding that we were able to receive at that time. And he just essentially said, well, the church by economy accepts your baptism, and, you know, when you come in and, and that, you know, that was enough for us at the time. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, the, the old calendarist movement and this sort of rigorous strain began to um, erode my confidence in mm. the reality of our communion with the church. Wow. And uh, it's, I'm certainly not alone in that. There are, so when, uh, when yeah. if you don't mind me asking, just to make a clarification here yeah. for people listening or watching, when did the old calendarist movement break off officially? Do you, do you know oh. that off the top of your head? It's a really good question. Well, the State Church of Greece, as I understand it, adopted the new calendar shortly after the Pan-Orthodox Synod of 1923-1924 in Constantinople. The State Church of Gre okay. Greece followed suit. Um, pressure, it was basically pressure by the civil government. Um, the formal break, though, see, they, they were very reticent at that point to establish a separate hierarchy. Uh, a bishop came out of retirement to sort of shepherd the group. And there had been a hmm. sign in Athens on the old calendar feast day of the Holy Cross. They talk about it a lot in their founding literature because they look at it as sort of like God's blessing on this movement as a whole. But it became fractured very early on. Um, a, a monk by, uh, on Mount Athos named Matthew of, I think, Vrestina, something like that, he... Uh, he obtained ordination and began to do single, he single or, ordained another bishop so that then they could do canonical two bishop ordinations to create a rival oh. synod. But it was he wow. who, who began the teaching that the adoption of the, of the new calendar resulted in a complete loss of grace, mysteriological grace by the state church of Greece. Wow. Um, I believe it was Chris, Chrysostom of Florina. I could be wrong on that name, but I believe it was Chrysostom of Florina that sort of, he was he was the one that was sort of shepherding the movement, did not want to make that claim, later did under pressure in an attempt to unify the movement. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it, it was sort of a gradual break, even as like the, the resistance movement happened. Much later on, there were, you know, lots of various rival synods of, 
people and their nephews, ordaining their nephews and creating these rival yeah. synods and anathematizing one another. Uh, became very fractured very early on, you know, everybody declaring one another without grace. Sure. And um, Rocor at the time, this is according to Father Andrew Phillips, who was really well acquainted with sort of the history behind the movement. Rocor did not want to touch that in, in very mm. early on. They were uh, very hesitant about the canonical stance of the resistors, so-called, and certainly their own traditional view of the sacraments and ecclesiology did not endorse you know they old calendarism unfortunately took the reasoning that was established that was sort of created in the uh or given given a lot of precedence in the in the greek world of the 18th and 19th centuries it took that to i think its logical conclusions in a really scary way sure but um yeah, you know, and of course, are you, are you speaking uh, more of like the council in uh, 1750? Is it 50 or 60? It was 1755 uh, and 1756 that Patriarch yeah. Cyril V, yeah. uh, you know, without his synod, um, you know, going essentially against all of the most authoritative quasi-ecumenical conciliar thinking at the time, um, and, and, you know, Archimandrite Ambrose, uh, Ambrose Pogodin, I, I believe is his name. He, mm -hmm. he's got, there's a great yep. article online that discusses sort of the, unfortunately, the decadence of theological and canonical learning amongst, you know, in the, in that milieu under the thumb of the Sultan and they'd reached yeah. some really extreme opinions. And, right. And, uh, and Archimandrite Ambrose, of course, is in the later 20th century, if that's I'm right. thinking correctly. Yeah. That's right. So like the 1990s. Um, so so where did all of this leave you? And by the time of the early 2000s, this 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 80 year old movement um, has gone online. It has spread like wildfire, even coming into what we would call canonical jurisdictions with insistence on on old calendar uh, kind of things. Where did this leave you and your early stages of being in the church? You know, my my search for the most correct, most canonical, most rigorous old calendarist church in West Virginia at the time was was really fruitless in the sense that I didn't mm. find anybody other than this little Rocor mission parish and uh, their monastery. And uh, you know I, we fell in love with it. It was it was amazing. Oh, good. To, to me, it was you know at the oh. time. When I joined it, to my shame, I, I really sort of considered because of Rocor's communion at the time with the so-called moderate resistors um, mm -hmm. under the uh, synod of like Cyprian, I believe Cyprian. Um, you know, I thought, well, that's essentially us being in the in the old calendarist movement. Um, you know, <laughs> I didn't know anything about anything yet, but I did find people there that also sympathized with the old calendarist movement. You know, 90s Rocor sure. was really this mix. And a lot of the convert parishes were, were, you know, they had a lot of this like Greek old calendarist ideas. In fact, the priest who received us there, so, you know, we're just newly chrismated and we like up and leave our Greek parish that we'd been attending yeah. for more than a year because they were quote unquote ecumenist. Yeah, I never heard mm -hmm. anything from either my the priest that catechized and married us or the new priest that would you know compromise orthodoxy in any significant way uh, you know was it a, was it a normal 
parish with like regular people. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, the Rokor mission was like this young, vibrant, you know, they had crunchy moms and homeschoolers and head coverings yes. and that kind of thing. You know, it has oh, the, yeah. <laughs> it has the Orthodox aesthetic that you, uh, you find in these places. And I'm not, I'm not trying to mock that. Of course, that's piety is a really precious thing. And, um, of course, and, uh, they loved us, you know, they were also really welcoming and, and we sort of fell mm -hmm. in with that, but the, the priest there, uh, at the time, um, he, his spiritual father was sort of a Greek old calendarist and oh, he wow. had advised, yeah. uh, he'd had his wife, his Matushka, who had converted in the OCA, uh, by chrismation, he had actually had her baptized many oh. years after. So he'd had her correctively baptized. Yeah. And, um, when, uh, so when we wanted to join and we, you know, we were at a vigil, we went to confession and he asked us how we had been received. He asked me how we had been received. And uh, when we said chrismation, he actually wouldn't even absolve me um, because he wasn't Whoa. sure that I was actually validly in the church yet. Wow. So he wanted to go That's talk to the That's a pretty hard bishop. line. Well, you know, he did it in a very gentle way. This is like one of the, you know, at the time it didn't, it didn't make me feel anything other than, yeah, thankfully someone cares so much about our salvation, you know, that they're not just going to, you know, wing this thing. They're going to really go, yeah. you know, and I was almost disappointed at that point in my own mentality that, you know, he had conferred with the bishop who had actually been the voice of, of common sense and said, these <laughs> these people who were baptized already, they've been received by chrismation validly. And now they're, yes, you know, you know, confess and commune them and, and everything else. So, you know, we, that's, that's how we joined. Wow. So but how we, long uh, were you, how long were you there? And also what's this deal with, with corrective baptisms? I mean, we got to get into that at some point. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, you know, in retrospect, Father Seraphim Rose talks about it and he is not a fan of the whole corrective baptism movement. There was a big group in, in because... Great Britain that yeah. had uh, essentially done that. Um, there were priests at the time that would, you know, travel to Mount Athos and, uh, and come back baptized. Things mm -hmm. like, the, you know, anomalies were happening, but yeah. it was sort of the, and Father Seraphim Rose, uh, I believe in one of his letters, ch chalks it up to this sort of, I don't believe he uses the word scrupulosity, but it's, it's that same mentality of needing to be sure and he says it's not going to provide mm. you with any sort of assurance that you're seeking, actually. Um, Interesting. And, and really, well, it's going so to erode your faith in the church. One of the one of the things that has been taught on the internet, of course, is that uh, there's a, a distinction here that Father Seraphim Rose was brought in by chrismation, but that's an exception. And so, in the exception, there actually is grace filled, but it can't. I can't help but wonder at what point do you recognize the chrismation and at what point do you say no there's no validity there so for me i guess the question comes down to a bunch of different things look if the baptism of heterodox is not valid in any sense in any way across the board as a monolith then how do you have priests that were brought in by chrismation, and this would also account or apply to Father Seraphim Rose, who is a, a priest monk. Uh, are their sacraments valid? 
Mm. Because you can't be brought into the church without baptism. That's right. And, you know, the more that I began to read on this topic, I, I began to sort of see the 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 implications of it. Hmm. It's it's a really dangerous rabbit hole. Uh, Father Peter Hears and I actually had a dialogue about it on his website many hmm. years ago because, in a way, there's sort of a spectrum. I, I, I would say there's a spectrum on sort of bo- both of the main sides, but the spectrum on the economic theory, I think Father Peter Hears, and, and I would love to hear him explain this more, but at least when he and I spoke on his website, He's on the far, far end of that spectrum. You can, so, so the sort of like the minority Russian economic theory by Metropolitan Antony of, uh, of Kiev and his, uh, his student, St. Hilarion Troitsky. You know, yes. their view is, listen, the church has this power. It absolutely can use it, especially for liturgical Protestants. Um, you know, and for Roman Catholics and for uh, Severians, you know, the Monophysite communion. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you're receiving these sacraments virtually, but basically under whatever sign of initiation that you received, under whatever sacrament of initiation, virtually is communicated to you the invisible grace of all the other sacraments that you would need. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, so, so, but they, they have, but on, but they're still like, it's, it's a much more open view to chrismation. Uh, into uh, you know receiving Roman Catholics even by confession and and abjuring of of heresy and that kind of thing on the on the very far end um, some people say the Colivati's fathers were this way I don't really believe that uh, but mm. on the far, far end you find Father Peter Hears who essentially says that those improperly received by chrismation and 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 to that he would he quotes certain texts that would indicate the only forms that you may that you may not repeat you may choose not to repeat them if it's expedient for the church somehow to trick someone to believe that they've been baptized even though you know they haven't is hmm. is to receive them uh but the, the only form that you can actually do that uh and not repeat is one that is exactly like the orthodox rite that in wow. no way differs. And so Father Peter hears his position, I believe, and I would love to hear him explain this better if I'm misrepresenting him. I don't want to do that. Um, is that basically all of these inappropriately received people are not really baptized. They are not That's really interesting baptized. Because, it, no. Go ahead. Well, Sorry. it is a rather hard line, and we know that he was brought into the church himself by chrismation and then later seeked a corrective sought a corrective baptism on Athos, but I don't know if his family did, his father, mm, his his mother. Now, I, I, I don't want to speculate there, so I'm going to leave that there, but I want to clarify, are you saying that on that far side, uh, because I've read some of uh, St. Hilarion of Troitsky's works, um, so on that far side you have Father Peter Hears and St. Hilarion, is that no, no. I would say, no. Roughly speaking, okay. right. Roughly speaking, they're on the same division in the sense that they both believe that in in any sort of heresy and schism or parasynagogue in any of those categories, the mysteries are empty rituals. They have they're devoid of any sort of grace content at all. Right. Both of them do believe that on that end. 
and Saint Hilarion there is in the absolute minority of, yeah. of Russian yeah. fathers yes, and theologians, and and gets critiqued, you know, on that very, you know, on that oh, particular oh. issue. So unrelentingly, unrelentingly right. by uh, and, Father Daniel. Um, I just want to pull out some names here, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, by like Father Daniel Sisoev. How do you say his last name? Sis I would say Sisoev. Right. Yes. Sisoev. Father Daniel. That's um, right. Yeah, he uh, he had critiqued him, uh, Saint Hilarion, stridently on a public forum. Um, essentially saying that the opinion, and this is a direct quote, the opinion of St. Hilarion that all the sacraments of the heretics are invalid is not based on the tradition and contradicts the spirit and the letter of the canons. And, you know, uh, St. Daniel, um, Blessed Father Daniel, he graduated at the top of his, of his class at Moscow Theological Seminary. Um, you know, this was a brilliant, brilliant theologian, very deeply, um, he, he deeply venerated the Greek tradition. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, this is not someone that's just like, oh, you know, our Russian church says this. He was conversant in the Holy Fathers. Um, he loved Byzantine chant. You know, he, uh, he he was really familiar even with minor Byzantine canonists like Aristinos. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I, I say minor. I don't mean minor. I, I have no idea what I'm talking about when it comes to canonists. I just know he's not he's not Balsaman or um, uh, Vlastaris, you know, but Aristinos actually, I mean, according to what I've seen, this canonical commentator, this Byzantine canonical commentator also speaks of the validity of mysteries within uh, heresies and schisms that are not, that don't alter the very faith in God itself. And that's, mm. the, that's sort of the sleight of hand, the rhetorical sleight of hand that rigorists use, the, the, the extreme rigorists, is that they, they, it's, they employ the word concept fallacy. Heretic does not always mean what you think it means, and it really depends mm -hmm. highly upon the contextual situation. So, yes. you know, um, and, and St. Basil mentions this, you know, that, that in the apostolic mm -hmm. canons, heretics are referring to people that worship a different God. You know, the very faith in the, in the Trinity itself is violated. In, in that respect, Andrew, yeah. yeah, under St. Basil's so categories, to, yeah. Well, I just wanted to draw that out because apostolic... Um, in the apostolic canons, which took place in 375, 380, um, we have a number of canons specifically that are usually drawn out. We have canon 46, 47, 49, and 50, which deal very strictly, even going so far as to say deposing a clergy member who has brought them in without rebaptizing or rebaptizing, without baptizing. Um, them in all cases. And so what you're saying here, because I didn't realize this, but what you're essentially saying is uh, that the category used for heretic in the apostolic canons is essentially non-Christian. We're talking Gnostics, yes. Gnostics, yes. yes. Okay, so pagan. We would not even classify Arians as heretics under that model, moderate Arians. Um, Interesting. So, so, so the apostolic constitutions, which are constantly pointed at by members that hold this far, far out strict right. view, are really not talking about what they're claiming they're talking no. about. No, and you find this, this is, this is really easy to find. I mean, this, this stuff, first of all, St. Basil, second, St. Theodore the Studite, he even mm. says any, you know, the heretics that 
that aren't like that, that actually still confess the three hypostases and employ the biblical formula for baptism, are baptized. That's St. Theodore the Studite. You don't get much wow. more Byzantine than that. Um, yeah. But, uh, sorry, and I sort of digressed here, but uh, Father Peter Hears and I, when we were dialoguing on this, you know, we were bringing up various examples, but he he holds the view that he claims St. Fermilion of Caesarea holds. And St. Yes. Fermilion was, and he was, was an outlier. In the third century. Right. Yeah. And St. Fermilion is one of the only people we know to have essentially said, no, no, no. Everybody outside, it doesn't matter the form that you, you received, you've got to be brought in by baptism. And if you weren't, you are not baptized. Mm. The church did not adopt that opinion. It seems very clear to me that the case that is being made for this very rigorous, strict position is only taking into account certain things in a very non-nuanced, ahistorical manner. So before we go down the St. Fermilion rabbit hole, what I would love to do is pull out the strongest argument for the rigorous position, and I have some figures listed here, like uh, we constantly hear about St. Cyprian of Carthage, uh, in 256, of course, one of St. Cyprian's uh, primary teachers, not directly, but he venerated him, was Tertullian. So, And then the Council of Carthage in 257, which was chaired by Cyprian, um, held this kind of rigorous view, or at least this is what we're told. And then after that, St. Fermilian, and then Laodicea of 360, uh, 363 with Canon 8, then you have the Apostolic Constitutions, which, as we've already talked about, is actually not a, a point that proves anything on the rigorous side, although they try to use it, because heretic actually means here Gnostic, pagan, non-Christian. And then you have to go all the way up to 1755 to get another person on, on, this, on this boat, and that's the Council of Constantinople. And in the intervening time, you know, a whole lot of theology and history and, and spirit-filled reflection happened among the saints and fathers. You know, beginning with Saint, beginning with Saint Augustine and the and the very Church of Carthage, Saint Cyprian's own Church, specifically addressed this and said, essentially, no, that's not right. Saint yeah. Augustine, mm -hmm. viewing Saint Cyprian's ecclesiology, said, while very well-meaning, the saint conflated the validity of a, of a mystery with its efficacy. Mm -hmm. And because he didn't use employ that distinction and just essentially focused upon whether it, he, he, you know, whether it was real or not, um, you know, it's, it's actually not helpful. And so in council, in Synod, and this is a really orthodox council in a lot of ways, you know, it foreshadows a lot of the big orthodox statements about headship in the church and everything else. Mm -hmm. You know, in 419, when Carthage assembles all of the bishops of Africa, they essentially tell the Pope, by the way, the copies of canons you've got with the Sardican appellate uh, uh, canons appended to the canons of Nicaea, this is not correct. This does not give you a universal appellate jurisdiction over the African church. And uh, frankly, you are wrong about Apiarius, this this troublesome cleric that that had appealed to Rome at the time, and they essentially tell him this is sort of inviting uh, Roman worldliness and politics into the governance of Christ's church. They also hmm. say, why would a single man uh, have more wisdom than all of the bishops assembled in council when the Holy Spirit is promised to us? Yeah. So, so it's one of the one of the yeah. 
I was just going to say the Council of Carthage in 257, which was chaired by Cyprian, is what's often pointed to. But what is not mentioned is that this, the decrees of this council, specifically on this issue of baptism, were reversed by subsequent, three subsequent Carth, uh, councils of Carthage, 345, 397, and then 419, which we're talking about That's now. Right. I think I think it's Canon sixty eight of four nineteen that specifically says. I mean, this is the theology of the council. There, very few canons really sort of explain the underlying theology. A lot of it we we do mm -hmm. have to sort of infer and and model out. You know, how how does this apply? Sure. Why does this apply this way? They spell it out for us. Donatist baptism is true. It's the true and saving baptism. It just doesn't mm. save you. In That's why it's not repeated though upon joining the Catholic Church. And that's, mm -hmm. you know, that that's what we begin finding in councils all over the place, including the Orthodox West, which is often ignored. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the it's Orthodox true. West really, really treated this issue. Um, you know, St. Uh, St. Vincent of Lorraine, you know, in his mm -hmm. commonatory, you know, yep. which speaks about how do we find what the church teaches if there has been no general council on the on the issue? You know, we yeah. look for these things. We look for authority, yeah. antiquity, consent. We look for regional dispersion and over time and that kind of thing. We look for consensus because right. even even spirit-filled men, even the saints of God, even the deified, uh, are are you know while they're in this life, they're prone. They can they can err, and uh, actually, right. God even yeah, allows that, it. He says. Yeah, and that's uh, for for those that may not know, that's often called the rule of Saint Vincent. Um, and another thing I want to point out is I think it's Canon 57 talks a lot about this in Canon, Canon 57 of the Carthage Council in, in uh, 419. But I have some other figures here, and this is what I find so fascinating. A lot of times people want to dis, dis, uh, disregard the West entirely, and I think this is a categorical mistake. In my own research on the resurrection of the body, when speaking about transgenderism and people that have chosen to cosmetically transition, so uh, you know, removing organs and such, I had to rely a lot on the Western Fathers because it's the Western Fathers that talk about the bodily resurrection in detail as opposed to what we would get maybe from Origen with a slow dissipation of the body over time or what we would see in Nyssa with a kind of sexless um, resurrection. So it's a real mistake to discard uh, the Western Christians, and just to pull some of those out, of course, we have um, St. Stephen, so Pope St. Stephen in 258. Uh, we have, and, and stop me if you want, but I, I want to, uh, if you have a commentary, but I want people to know what the evidence actually suggests, because you're not going to hear this if you're only listening to certain sources. You'll well, and I would recommend hear about, just sources, you know, there, there's uh, ancient yeah. insights. You know, Ancient who, who insight is, is amazing. Yes, I believe it's, uh, his name is Ben as well, and he is—he's uh, he, just brilliant. He, I, th I believe he goes mm -hmm. by Codex Justinianus or something like that. Yes, his his website really has done a lot of the deep work. Um, he references a great um, set of uh, Russian modern Russian theological writers mm -hmm. that have compiled yes. some of these patristic quotations too. Um, there's a great scholar that has done work on the actual opinions within the rudder uh, named yes. Peter um, Pashkov. 
yeah. who's just brilliant. And he and we also should talk is... about that too, because the the rudder sure. itself is presented as a monolith of opinion, but really it contradicts itself on this issue. Yes. Um, it does. So let's talk and... about let's we should talk about that because that's also something that people are not going to be told if you're just listening to to one site. Also, let me let me tell you, I, I'm going to put uh, ancient insights, some of his articles, in the the description. So if you're looking for those, go ahead and click there. Uh, but the rudder itself, and that's uh, how how far along is that? Is that 1800s? That's right. It was it was published or promulgated, maybe initially in Venice. Mm-hmm. by uh, the Ecumenical Patriarchate. Um, yeah. So it's, it's a late collection of, of the canons of the church, sort yeah. of the magnum opus of the great Athenite scholar, Nicodemus of the Holy mm-hmm. Mountain. It's from what I, what little I understand of the topic, but there has been this, you know, scholarship on, on this extremist opinion that the rudder does espouse that actually at least one part of that spectrum that perhaps the saint did not participate in, that it was actually the opinion of the patriarchal censor and theologian Vulis Mas. And yeah. um, that this was one of those things that the correspondence has been uncovered between the saint and Vulis Mas on the issue. Um, yeah. And part of it, I believe, is because the saint was aware of the very long-standing practice of the Russian church that was, yeah. you know, based upon holy synods that had assembled themselves based upon the decisions of the four Eastern patriarchs. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, yeah, it's, you know, to me, I think one of the worst things that can happen for a newly converted, minted Orthodox person, especially a young man, is to get his hands on the rudder. A hundred percent. I think it should be a work that is not approached by many, um, in fact, you shouldn't even read about, don't even read, don't even bother, just pray. I mean, for yes. me, you know, and this comes from someone that has read the rudder uh, in its entirety. Um, but just to put it into perspective here, uh, and we've already discounted in a way the apostolic constitutions for the rigorous position because of its meaning about the word heretic. It doesn't actually prove anything. You go from the Council of Laodicea, Canon 8, in 363, all the way, from what I understand, all the way to 1755, yeah. 1,400 years, without getting another pro-rebaptized thing. In the meantime, you have Pope St. Stephen, 258, Pope St. Sixtus II, who was, I believe, his successor, St. Dionysius in three. 264. You have the Ecumenical Council of Nicaea in 325, Canons 8 and 19. You have the Council of Carthage in 345, which we talked about. You have St. Basil in 379, who says, we don't rebaptize because of Acrivia. So because the canons say it, Acrivia literally is the word of the canon. Economia is laxing it. So St. Basil, this distinction between Economia and Acrivia, to say that it is Economia to chrismate is actually opposite of what it actually is. It's a crivia to chrismate, yeah. because that's what the councils say. And that's, that's in right. 379. Look at canons, uh, Basil's canons 1 and 47. Um, and then you have Constantinople, the first, 381, right? That's an ecumenical council. Look at canon 5. You have, again, another council of Carthage in 397. St. Optatus in 397 also. St. Uh, Cyrusus, Cyrusus. 
In 399, you have Pope St. Innocent I. You have <laughs> Carthage again, 419. We talked about that. You have St. Jerome, 420. St. Augustine, 430. St. Vincent of Lerin, 445. You have the Council of Chalcedon, again, ecumenical, Canon 14. You have Pope St. Leo the Great, 461. You have St. Fulgentius, 5, 533. You have uh, Pope St. Gregory the Great, 604. St. Isidore of Seville, 636. You have the Council of Trullo, and we'll come back to that because I know that comes up. Um, you also have St. Theodore the Studite, which you mentioned. You have St. John of Damascus in 665, who basically says rebaptism is a re-crucifixion of Christ. You have St. Tarasius, um, which I think is 9th century. He's of Constantinople. You have the Canonist Zonaris in the 12th century. You have the Canonist Balsamon, Patriarch of Antioch in the 1200s. St. Mark of Ephesus, 1444. These are not small, small saints, people. You have Council of Constantinople in 1484. You have Philaret of Moscow, uh, Philaret, Philaret, in 1633. You have the Council Philaret, of yeah. Jassy, mm -hmm. the Confession of St. Peter of Moglia, 1642. Council Mahila, of Moscow, right. 1666 mm -hmm. through 1667. Uh, you have Council of Jerusalem, 1672. You have the Confession of Docythius, Decree 15, 1672, and then you have the Council of Constantinople in 1755. Through Which 17... is immediately dissented from by many bishops within the Greek Church itself, yes. rejected by everybody else beyond the borders of the of the Ottoman Empire, yes. deeply critiqued by, by canonists, mm -hmm. uh, including... Uh, a probable modern, uh, you know, semi-modern Saint Nikodim Milosh, the Serbian church, Archbishop Nikodim, who was this brilliant canonist who said this is not, this was provoked by, the, you know, the, Lat the uh, Latins had gained this huge party within the Patriarchate of Antioch. This was a reactionary type of thing. And um, yeah, and completely rejected. And you also have Saint Theophan the Recluse. Um, That's right. Talking about this, which is interesting because he's one that the rigorists like to pull out for different things. Um, it's it's very interesting because you see these figures when a point, and I don't want to assume malintent. That's not my that's not my opinion here. I think everyone has the best intent in mind, but you do see rhetorical sleight of hand, and it is not scholarship. You can call it scholarship. But it is, it is taking bits and pieces from different saints to prove different points to build an entire system which seems foolproof and seems completely, and I've said this before, black and white. It's easy to get your mind around. The reality is anything in the church is not easy. It never has been. <laughs> it never has That's been. That's right. Um, I mean, and then, is, you know, we yeah. have – yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say St. Theophan the Recluse is – very explicit about this topic, especially with respect to the Latins, that mm. not only recognize their their sacrament of baptism, but their priesthood. Um, and this is the opinion of the 1903 synodal response of the largest Orthodox Church, the Church of Russia, pre-revolution, mm -hmm. um, the most powerful and influential and most learned, the one with the most seminaries, the most monasteries and everything else, their official statement to Constantinople itself is we mm. believe in the sincerity of their faith in the Most Holy Trinity. Um, wow. We don't baptize them because they are baptized. We believe in their priesthood. Right. They preserved right. apostolic succession. 
This was their right. official well, synodal and... response to Constantinople. So it at least is an acceptable theological opinion. That's what our opponents must, the, the, those on the other side of the issue must accept it as a genuine, valid theological opinion. It remained uncontradicted by the four Eastern patriarchs, yes. uh, the, the apostolic patriarchs, when the largest Orthodox synod answered them officially that this was their position. And it is important to note this because on the one, and this is something that I think is also part and parcel of the rigorist approach, is that it's presented as the orthodox approach. And essentially yeah. what I'm trying to get across specifically in this conversation is that there is a lot of evidence to the contrary, even if the, the loudest voices online and orthodad of five, Zach here has, uh, if you want to follow him on Twitter, highly recommend that you do. I've learned a lot uh, from him and he's posting actual sources and actual citations, which you don't always see from the other side of, if you want to say the aisle, <laughs> the aisle. Um, and it's important to recognize that uh, this uh, presentation of the rigorous position being the orthodox position is is really uh, theologically, academically. I've been I've been uh, criticized for saying academically because, of course, the only thing that matters is uh, you know charismatic elders. <laughs> sort of a. <laughs> A nasty little jab, jab there, I guess. But, <laughs> but You're right, uh, academically, the yeah, the way yeah. they've they've, they've framed Please. the issue, and and the way that that I sort of imbibed this initial extremism on on my own was, here's the position of of the liberal academy. Here's the position yeah. of the people that are selling out orthodoxy every day. Yes, and here's the position of you know the holy monks, the ones that are levitating, yeah. the ones that are healing, the yeah. ones that are prophesying. All, their their entire position is this. It's not that way. And when you sort of cross that boundary and you realize, no, 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 the traditional position is is actually the opposite of what this very late, very controversial, virtual, uh, very uh, illogical opinion is. You know, yeah. uh, Florovsky even, you know, he, he's trotted out even. The old calendarists love Father uh, Georges Florovsky. I'm probably butchering how he is the French form of his name, but... Florovsky is this, you know, he's an intellectual giant. Everyone sort of likes to enlist him, but he's very, very critical. He's he's one of the ones, he's a Russian that believes that the church should sort of undergo a rehellenization. He will, he does not stick to the economic theory. He says that's the most illogical thing. He says if the, if the wilderness of gracelessness uh, exists just beyond the canonical boundaries, all the more reason the church cannot compromise. Not only yeah. that, he, he asks... Whoever gave the church the ability to abrogate a commandment of the Lord for salvation? Yeah. You know, if, if 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 these people are not baptized and have nothing, how much more of a reason is it to not, you know, delude them into thinking, no, no, you already have that, so don't yeah. worry, just come join us. That's ridiculous. Right. So can you can you validly hold the opinion? I had a conversation with someone, and they were under the opinion that you could val validly believe that you need to be baptized in the Orthodox Church in order to be a part of the church, but still said it doesn't contradict that some people are brought in by, via chrismation and their sacraments if their priests are valid. To me, it's a complete logical, is, it, is, it's the, the law of non-contradiction. It's a contradiction to say you cannot be in the church unless you're baptized by us, and then to say, 
but sometimes you can. And on and on the most extreme side, which I believe I'm I'm afraid that that some some are championing today. Yeah. You, you know, it undermines really even the whole existence of the hierarchy. You know, when yes. you know historically that Latin dioceses even have been received wholesale units, yep. you know, uh, under the conquest yes. of Catherine the Great, the, you mm-hmm. know, this huge, huge populations of former units just appealed to become recognized by the uh, Russian Orthodox Church and become canonically subordinate to her, their mm-hmm. monks, their priests, their bishops, their laity, and they were not received by anything other than a signature. Yeah. If, uh, it, yeah. you know, if, if the, ri- the super rigorous position and, and these bishops went on to help co-ordain, you know, today's bishops. So you've, you've so, got a huge So where does that leave problem. the church? Does that mean, right. does that mean that we, the church itself in the most extreme form, if you're going to take it reductio ad absurdum, if you're going to take yes. it by strict logical consequences, that means that even though they're saying we do know where the church is because of the physical bounds of the Orthodox church, that even contradicts itself because we don't based on who was received what way. Well, not only that, I'll give you one more, you know, the, the most, the most absurd thing is they can't ever actually ever be even confident that they were properly correctly baptized and here's right, why the secession. opinion of the rudder right the opinion of the rudder and the exomologatarian is that laity don't really properly baptize now parents mm. who, who don't baptize their infant before they die uh, are penanced in the in the exomologatarian and the canons of saint john the faster but the commentary which is an 18th century or 19th century commentary is, well, you know, um, if the infant lives, then they must be received by baptism because what was given to them isn't wow. really like the same thing. Yes, it's that rigorous. Well, if you have a bunch of people who themselves were not validly baptized or, you know, brought in under the wrong method of economy in this rigorous position, then made clergy. Even if they're they're ordaining, you know, and 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 they become a part of the apostolic succession themselves, and this has happened, you know, centuries and centuries ago, that perhaps the people that they've ordained are not really priests either. So if they have baptized yeah. you, you have no reason to really believe that you are actually validly baptized by a validly ordained Orthodox priest. It undermines. At its root logic, it undermines the whole concept of apostolic succession in the sacraments. Well, and, and it undermines exactly what they're trying to preserve, which is to know where the church is That's or right. where the efficacy of the sacrament lies. So the issue here that we would run into, you can deny it all you want, but straight down the pipeline from this rigorous position is donatism. And yes. I think we see this with St. Augustine's all, response to Cyprian. And Donatism is, is really just, you know, in, in its modern form is old calendarism and, and that kind of thing. It's the same arguments. We are the pure church. Um, yes. these, these people are hopelessly compromised and only we have the valid mysteries. Mm. Mm. Well, and, you know, and, and old calendarism does this other thing that St. Nicodemus did not, to be fair. In fact, um, I've read that St. Nicodemus, one of the reasons that he was canonized by Athenagoras um, was that he's very clear, St. Nicodemus is, that, that heretical hierarchs 
who are not condemned themselves still dispense the sacraments, you know, the, the valid grace. Mm. And unless they are themselves defrocked, they validly ordain, they validly confect the Eucharist and everything else. And, um, you know, uh, the, the belief of the old calendarists is as soon as, as soon as, you know, a hierarch or a priest, uh, you know, believe something that they have deemed heretical, like the calendar changes valid, even if they themselves are on the old calendar, if they're in communion with the new calendarist, they themselves lose grace. It's like this vanishing electricity power game to figure out where the, the power remains. And uh, it, you know, I think it, I think it's a perfect recipe for despair. I think it's uh, one of those psychological things that's based upon this dire need for certainty that ultimately doubts God's love, that doubt and, and doubts the promise that Christ gave to the church. Wow, I don't think I, I I'm in full agreement with you there. We wind up getting more of an invisible church than Protestantism. Yeah, and it's it's one of those things that uh, the church really does need to address as a whole. And uh, even the Greek church, the Greek church in 1875, you know, they, they were sort of perplexed by the differences themselves. You know, there was a patriarchal commission at that point to sort of figure out, you know, the varying approaches and, and that sort of thing. And they, they sort of left it with, you know, we need to have a council on it. And I believe yeah. the you know the 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 Pan Orthodox Synod attempted uh, at at one point it was on the subject matter list for discussions and it got removed, um, unfortunately. But it's one of those things that really does strike at the heart of ecclesiology and sacramentology, and I, I think it's it's so important. Um, yeah, it can really. I, I know I know several people that were validly received and then uh you know they they sort of get the rigorous bug and they get correctively baptized hmm. so i one of the questions um that i've seen from catechumens looking into this issue which i wish i wish they wouldn't um but is why is it a big deal if i'm rebaptized? Well, according to the Holy Fathers, I mean, it's it's a sin. It's a it's a terrible sin. We confess one baptism for the remission of sins, uh, the single spiritual rebirth. Um, it has to do with the you know the the finality of Christ's sacrifice. It's uh, it's you know wound up with all of that. In fact, Saint Philaret's Catechism, which enjoys incredible authority, both by virtue of its official sanction by the largest Orthodox Church in the world, also by its centuries and centuries of use, uncontroversially, uh, says that the the clause in the creed that says, I confess one baptism for the remission of sins, was added at the Second Ecumenical Council spe specifically for this reason. Because uh, of, of the no because there were communities separated from the church by erring belief or by willful schism, who nevertheless worshiped the Holy Trinity and retained the sacramental understanding of baptism itself and were not to be baptized as a result. Why? Well, read St. Augustine. Christ is the performer of the sacraments. You know, when, when a priest exercises his priesthood, it is Christ's priesthood. He is our great high priest. Um, so, 
you know, we're not looking at the, at the human realm when it comes to the action of the sacraments. Now, that can be to our condemnation. That's the, the logic of St. Augustine, is that this, these aren't saving in heresy and schism precisely because the unity with the church is lost. There's the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. When the bond of peace is broken, the unity of the spirit is there. There's, there's certain, the, the mysteries are a signification of this sort of vestigial unity with the, with the church and a promise and a token of future return. But they don't do what they're supposed to do until, they, uh, until the, the community or the people in, in the community are reunited with the church. Uh, so two things, what you're essentially saying and what I've seen in the canons of the ecumenical councils is that as the church of the seven ecumenical councils, the Eastern Orthodox Church, as the canons proclaim, as the second part of the Nicene-Constantinople Creed was added in 381 to combat this idea of essentially rebaptism, because we have one baptism, that the church has already spoken on the issue conciliarly. Yes, that's and right. And those are recognized ecumenical councils, much different than the council in Carthage, the first one with St. Cyprian, much different than the later councils in 1755 and, and such. That's right. That's absolutely right. And, you know, um, if people understood the position that the, the, you know, the poor suffering Greek church endured at the time of that promulgation, you know, this was... This was a church just laid waste to by the by the Turk and the rapaciousness of the bureaucracy. These men had to bribe their way into office and then continue to pay um, until they, you know, until such a time as the throne, the Ottoman throne needed more, you know, taxes levied, and then they would dethrone them. They, you know, they 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 moved them around like pieces on a chessboard. Um, hmm. You know, this is, and and while that's while that doesn't affect the grace of the church at all. Um, you know, it should give us, it should give us pause to reflect upon the, the men that were able to conjure up those sums and sort of play the bureaucratic game. These were not necessarily the greatest and brightest theologians of the church. It yeah. just wasn't. Um, you know, I, I have nothing but sympathy for the, for, for the, that period of the church and, and, and all of that, but we have to be honest about you know that that period of time, and I think Archimandrite um, Ambrose uh, Pogodin's um, piece on it is you know does really good uh, in in sort of ex explaining that um, Runciman's Great Church in Captivity also, mm. you know, is is uh, really well written and um, yeah, but I, I do think that you know just as Orthodox lay people here in here in America trying to navigate how to live an Orthodox life, one of the worst things you can do is start you know divining canons for yourself. Um, start, you know, um, thinking that every little uh, mistake that a bishop makes somehow affects, you know, our ability to be the, the community of, of Christ. You know, if the church weren't more robust than that, it would have perished long ago. And, uh, you know, we, we're just, we're sort of pampered in America in a lot of ways yeah. in, in the 21st century. We, uh, you know, we, we've got the faith, we have, um, such a, a richness of, of theological learning and reflection and um, but but the you know American society is sort of the Protestantism uh, factory you know in a way it's uh, 
we want we want to uh, have all the information immediately accessible to us. We want to maybe we want to be entitled to our own opinions, and um, that's a really difficult thing to sort of let go. In I I think in like just being an American Orthodox person is uh, you you think you know well see I've read all the same things and so I'm entitled to my own opinion and that kind of thing and and combine that with the fact that you know maybe as a as an Orthodox person you you continue to struggle with uh, you know your your sinfulness with your your laziness in completing your prayer rule or you know yet another fast and. Uh, you know, you begin looking for for answers, and you well, you know what? Maybe the bishops were actually wrong in how that how I was received. Maybe maybe that's the whole issue. And I do think that there are especially young men that um, you know really thrive on that uh, the idea that you no, know, this is that's liberal. Uh, this is the based opinion. You know that kind of thing, and uh, that that's an illusion. It really is. Just that's what I have found anyway. Right, and a spiritual detriment too. It can be dangerous to one's spiritual life because it, introdu- it reintroduces a kind of despairing, disparaging of your own salvation. And so, my the second thing I wanted to ask you is, what would you say to someone that says, "Look, if we admit baptism outside of the church, then we're no better than the invisible church theory of Protestantism." Right. Well. It, that's just not the case. The, the sacraments that, that have been maintained by certain communities reflect on the fact that their origination, whether it's first, second, third, fourth hand, is from the original Orthodox Catholic Apostolic Church. Mm-hmm. This is a token of the fact that they, they have legitimate goods, but they're stolen. Um, yeah. But they're a token, you know, um, yeah, the when when the church spoke in council in Bethlehem, you know, to ratify the confession of Justitius, they can they they didn't speak of it even as an error to rebaptize. They spoke of it as as an abomination. Mm. And that's because the it's the church itself that emerges from the baptismal font. And the grace of Christ. And uh yeah, to, to sort of believe that there's this sort of mystical inner church, it really is a form of this, uh, of, of Protestantism. Uh, here are the spiritual elites, and everybody else, they're just sort of these heretical compromisers. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't erring people in the church. doesn't mean there aren't spiritually ill people in the church. Thank, thank God that there are spiritually ill people in the church. That's why we're, that's why we're welcome. We're welcome to come there and receive healing from Christ. Yeah. That doesn't mean there aren't ecumenical excesses and that kind of thing. I, you know, I, I myself, uh, you know, I'm not a fan of, you know, when when bishops get together and they sort of sign off on on silly things that make it look like we have a unity that we don't. Um, mm-hmm. But the church isn't going away. That doesn't uh, that doesn't necessarily make make a bishop an apostate. Anyone who can read Mark of Ephesus's words to the Pope. Pope Eugene the Fourth at Florence. I mean, he spoke to them not even as brothers, but as fathers. You mm. know, before before he realized uh, they were resolute in their heresy, you know, he came with absolute optimism uh, and and hopes for unity, and he was willing to sit down and dialogue. That that's a part of of, of the church from from ancient times. 
Right. So, so what about these conversations that, you know, people have on Twitter, maybe not the best forum, but can be used appropriately. Um, what about these conversations and people maybe that are, that are want to have good faith conversations, um, where in many cases we don't find, we don't find a reciprocal, uh, adherence to the Socratic means of dialogue? Well, that's a really good question. Well, as a uh, recovering, you know, rigorist myself, um, you know, Twitter can be really, really useful, you know, in finding sources and that kind of thing. But it's also, yep. it's one of those things where, golly, it's, uh, it, it, I think it's, because of the shortness of the format and the sort of psychological concept of a public audience that um, it really is a temptation toward, you know, uh, triumphalism. You're not really seeking the truth. You're seeking to record, uh, to score rhetorical points. Uh, you're, you know, meanness is, uh, is sort of rewarded. You know, we live in an age where, I mean, maybe I'm showing my age, you know, I just, I just left my thirties. So, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not this, you know, young blood anymore. This is, uh, this is a different thing, but a lot of the people that sort of like the chrism isn't even dry and they've decided <laughs> I'm going to be a teacher in the church. Yes. Uh, and they, they like bring, they host their own discords and they boot anybody that like dares dissent from like the minor opinion that they've got. Yes. Um, you know, that's like, it, it's really sad on, on the one hand. On the other hand, may, it may be a symptom of the fact that the church has to get its act together in terms of a unified witness and really speaking the language of 21st century American people that have deep spiritual questions. Especially, well, we even have, yeah, no, especially, please. I was just going to say, especially for young men. Um, yeah, we you know, even I have over, uh, yeah. priests that the chrism is barely dry, uh, and I don't want to disparage <laughs> that, but this idea that um, there is a rampant clericalism in the Orthodox Church on the rigorous side, which is essentially saying, look, if you're not a priest, you can't talk about this, your opinion doesn't matter, when in fact we're actually pointing to priests and bishops all the way down the church historical line, like these are not our words, these are not our words that we're pointing to, you know, but the fact that you can have a, a priest whose chrism is barely dried, someone who was brought into the church in the middle of the pandemic and barely saw the inner side of a church and then, you know, did a online one semester, two semesters of some sort of seminary and now teaching as a priest and, and in many cases themselves saying, you know, uh, these people aren't ordained, so you don't need to listen to them. They just, you know, they just, they just want division. It was, yeah, right. And you know, people this, this, fall for it, though. That's the thing. People, I, it's it's wild to me. And the whole I idea. I mean, Saint Paisius uh, wasn't a priest. That's right. That's right. And uh, you know, there's uh, in Russian they call it um, they call it uh, young elderism. Hmm. That uh, you know these these priests that they. They've read like you know Frederica and and Metropolitan Callista's Ware and you know a couple other things online and they think they've got a pretty good hold on everything and now they can tell you how many drops of water to drink and like what your prayer yes. rule should be yeah. and um, 
yeah, that's that's frightening, and we're uh, we don't know that we don't actually know what level we're supposed to be at right now. Um, I think we're all it, it's just a common malady to to sort of have this really exalted view of your own spiritual capabilities and in our culture yeah. and everything else. And it's, it's can be very, very harmful in, in Russia. It, it actually t- turned into this terrible abuse that this, the Holy Synod uh, had to correct. There were, uh, there were elders like, you know, telling people whom to marry and uh, you know, oh, people wow. that had never met one another, things like that. And people mm. just sort of, you know, blindly obeying in faith saying, well, no, this is, this is what, this person had told me and that kind of thing and just terrible, terrible ideas. So, so how did you get out of this rigorous view? I mean, the, for the most part, and this is something that I also want to draw out for people that are maybe not on the rigorous side, but find themselves coming to blows more or less, whether it be on Twitter, whether it be in person, whether it be via whatever, um, that the people that are taking this opinion, they haven't lived their whole lives yet, man. Like they can still right. discover, just like you yourself have, you you fell into it at an early age in orthodoxy. You're now almost two decades in from a prior conversation, right? Like you, you're, right. you're not a youngin. You're not a youngin nope. in the faith. <laughs> and, and you did have, how many years? How many years were you kind of in this position? Oh, golly, at least a decade. At least yeah. a decade when I, you know, was, if not an old calendarist sympathizer, um, at least someone very, very skeptical about the future of the Orthodox Church itself. That maybe we were going to just have to retreat into the caves and that, you know, really yeah. no bishop was trustworthy and that kind of thing. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's just Internet Orthodoxy can be a really troubling place. And I'll just I'll mention here. So by way of public repentance, although I personally repented to him before, um, you know, one of the first people I met to sort of challenge my rigorous views was a young seminarian by the name of Andrew Stephen Damick. <laughs> he and I back in the day on Live Journal really like threw some heat around on these very topics. He was oh, right wow. all along. I'd like to publicly say that. And he's he's a <laughs> he's an amazing priest. Um, yes. and I'm, you know, God grant many years to his ministry. And, uh, you know, I just, um, so much of it is, is fueled by pride and deep in spiritual insecurity. Um, you know, but coming out of it, some of it is living life. Some of it is just being committed to the consensus of the fathers. When you admit that someone illuminated by the Holy Spirit can be mistaken. In fact, there are many Many things that say that, not simply theological works of the Orthodox saints and, and you know, the, the theological heavy hitters, but even hagiographies where, you know, that speak mm. of this concept that very holy people can be mistaken. When you accept that and when you accept the fact that that's why we go for consensus, when you, you know, read a couple of the ecumenical councils and that kind of thing, the acts of the, the ecumenical councils where you, you see the sausage getting made, so to speak. The political, you know, involvement and the the genuinely holy people there and and, and that kind of thing. Um, when you maintain that commitment, you're going to find now, thankfully, especially now because of the sources coming out, especially from uh, the Church of Russia and and by you know other people that maybe don't fit in with the, you know, I hate to say this, but I, you know, just sort of sociologically, like 
anything from St. Vladimir's when I was in my rigorous days. It was just immediately suspect to me. Um, anything from like Paris from the 30s to the 90s, you know, from like the Institute of St. Serge, uh, just, you know, I was not going to listen to it. I knew it was like, you know, suspect. And uh, that's just not the case because the same the same school that sort of, you know, produced like Sergius Bulgakov, it also produced, you know, Vladimir Lossky and, and Florovsky and, and, you know, people like that. So um, some of it is just living life and realizing uh, as you, you know, go to vigil that, that, you know, having all the right opinions about something actually isn't going to help. Uh, you overcome your, your sins and passions and, and really meet Christ. Uh, you know, not that I, not that I'm, um, you know, much farther along that way, but, uh, you know, I've, I've realized that the things that matter, you know, the things that are most really relevant to like an Orthodox lay person, you know, the, the study of the scriptures, finding the patristic commentaries on the scriptures themselves and, and the, the books that are practical about, you know, living the spiritual life. And, you know, a good dose of church history will also help, I think, because, you know, you see, like, the, the church, God has seen fit to put his treasure in these jars of clay, in these vessels of clay, in earthen vessels. Um, you know, the, the the church is divine and human. And when you see the human side of it, nevertheless, you see that, no, it doesn't get eclipsed. Even when it can look like it's going to just be overcome by error, God preserves it in every age. And, uh, yeah, so I would say read, uh, read the things that are going to connect you most to Christ and uh, not give you headaches about some online, you know, Twitter war and, and stop being obsessed with, with being right and be careful because uh, you're going to find a lot of opinions. Orthodoxy, you know, is a world religion. It has hundreds of millions of people in it you're going to find a spectrum of opinions. Not all of them are going to be, you know, the sanctioned opinion of the church, even when that person with that opinion, you know, has a mitre on or a scufia or whatever. You just, or lives on sacred real estate. That doesn't give them a license of infallibility. It just doesn't. Was there a major turning point when you had to say to yourself, oh, I think maybe this last eight, nine years of the way I'm thinking. Was there a turning point or was it a gradual thing? And if so, what was that? Yeah, I, I can't really pinpoint like a, a major turning point other than meeting holy people uh, who did not share the same rigorous opinions. That was a big deal. Finding saints that didn't uh, w was huge, especially St. Theophan the Recluse. I mean, he's, he's a, to me, he's, you know, sort of the, one of the patrons of like the real, the spiritual life in the sense that, you know, you have unseen warfare, this great, this classic, you've got the path to salvation, you've got the spiritual life and how to be attuned to it. You've got his commentary on the 118th Psalm. Uh, you've got his thoughts for every day of the year. Such, I mean, this is a gifted preacher of repentance. This is someone that in no uncertain terms is not a liberal and yet, here he is willing to engage and, you know, even see the best in uh, heterodox confessions. You know, he, uh, there was a portrait of a, of a Western nun that he was a real fan of. He believed that it sort of, I think, it conveyed like the, 
seriousness of a monastic postulant to him. You know, the, the, I read that the Optina elders, you know, many of them were conversant in uh, later French theologians, uh, as well as the Holy Fathers. Um, you know, you, you find, you just, St. John of Kronstadt, who takes the archbishops, the Anglican archbishops, uh, you know, little portable altar and venerates it. This is a wonder-working elder. I have, I have a book of the miracles of St. Philaret of Moscow. This was a healer and an exorcist and a biblical scholar uh, who believed that the economic theory was ridiculous. Um, you know, so when you have like, not simply like, you know, one category of saints that may, you know, have been mistaken because the academic theology was X because of, you know, the so-called Western captivity and that kind of thing. No, you have miracle workers. You have people that were, that knew Greek. I mean, St. Theophan, the recluse, knew Greek. Um, so yeah, all of this, uh, all of this stuff, I, and, and specifically the rigorous attitude, just opinions aside, uh, the rigorous spiritual state, it's just, it's actually not, um, I don't think you can ma actually maintain it for very long without, you know, be, because pride uh, does disperse the grace of the Holy Spirit, you know, you find yourself involuntarily humbled. And I've certainly been that. Um, many times and places in my life. And uh, that will, if, you know, if you have some ears to hear and some eyes to look up at that point, you know, you can, you can change. And uh, yeah, you realize what, what's important is uh, often not going to be, uh, you know, someone's internet presence. It's being a dad, you know, do you pray with your children? Do uh do you mess up in front of your children and then do you apologize to them? Things like that. The, those are the biggest things that, that, that make a difference and that, uh, that God is, that God himself prioritizes. And I know that's like, that's such uh that's probably really trite to say, but that's, uh, that's true. Zach, this conversation has been so interesting. Uh, to have, and I would love to have more in the future if people have oh, questions what an honor and they want to for you to what, if, listen yeah. to me and, and ask me these things because you know this is a it's deep stuff and it's not easily unpacked. So I'm really grateful that no, you no. gave me the platform and, and asked me these questions. I'd love to you know talk more either on this yeah. platform or, or uh, elsewhere. Both, I think both is absolutely necessary. And if you're watching, listening, have a comment, a question, um, you can actually reach out directly. Uh, I don't know, you know, he's a father just as I am father, and so it, as he has time. Um, at Orthodad of Five, I think is your handle. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, on Twitter. So Orthodad of Five, I'm following him. I think his. Uh, his commentary on things and really the spirit that you approach um, the conversations with is, is really helpful and informative for me in learning how to use that platform appropriately. So I appreciate that. Oh, no, thank you. As always, thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. If you're not already, would you consider supporting this channel? You can do so by clicking the join button below on YouTube or go to Patreon, which is linked in the description. What we're trying to do is create a self-sustaining channel by your gifts and eventually travel around the world to cover orthodoxy in various cultures.